Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct thy paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Last opportunity to adjust and get warm, move towards the heater, whatever the case may be, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Well, if they, one thing I need to add to that opening announcement now, I've noticed this more and more, turn off your cell phones. We're getting in the 21st century. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for the privilege and opportunity we have today to gather together to worship you. Father, we thank you for the good news we heard this morning in the capture of Saddam Hussein and the next level of victory in our uh, war against terrorism. Father, we pray that we would be able to utilize uh, this capture in a way that continues to advance our cause and to continue to provide protection for our troops and for our nation at home. Father, we thank you for this nation. We thank you for the freedoms we have. We thank you for the fact that you continue to watch over us and protect us. We thank you for our president. We thank you for those who are serving in the military. We thank you for those who are willing to make the ultimate sacrifice in order to preserve our freedoms. Father, we thank you for our the wonderful provision of a Savior, the free gift of salvation, and all that we have in our Savior, all that's been provided for us in salvation is part of our spiritual life. We pray that we would not take these things lightly, not treat them in such a way as to, to take them for granted, but that we might realize what an incredible privilege we have as members of the royal family of God, royal ambassadors, royal priests, and those who have been given a tremendous responsibility and a privilege to live this spiritual life. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word today, you would uh, teach us that we would be challenged by it and that we would uh, be responsive to that challenge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, while everyone was here, hunkered down, snowed in, I was uh, traveling and I won't tell you about the 70 degree weather. That would, that would probably not be a good thing to do, so I won't talk about that. But, uh, as you, I went to the pre-trib rapture study group meeting down in, uh, Dallas. And as usual, I always some, come, come back with some little tidbit 
of new information. I've got a lot, and I will be uh, sharing some of that in the next few weeks. But I want you to, instead of opening your Bibles right away, I want you to open your Bible to, I mean, open your hymnal to hymn number 171, Joy to the World. Now, we're not going to sing it, but there's, I have been bothered about this hymn for a long time because there are certain certain elements of it that have have bothered me and for a long time I have thought that this hymn was basically an amillennial or postmillennial hymn sometimes you know you get so close to the truth it's it's right there in your face and you don't see it it's a second advent hymn Isaac Watts was was uh, was premillennial it's a second Advent hymn. This is not a first Advent hymn. We sing it every year at Christmas. But this is not talking about what happens at the first coming of the Messiah. This is talking about what happens at the second coming of the Messiah. Look at the at the first verse. Look down to the third line in the first verse where it says, In heaven and nature sing. This is what is portrayed in the Psalms, that when the Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom, it's pictured poetically as heaven, as, as nature, the trees are dancing, the, uh, uh, nature is singing. Then we get into the second line, first, uh, second verse, first line, joy to the world, the Savior reigns, he doesn't reign until the second coming. He is not reigning now and will not reign until he comes to present the king, the kingdom, and again you have in the second line of the second second verse, while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. So again, that's talking about the curse being removed from nature, which happens at the second advent. And then the third stanza: No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's second coming. This is the millennium. So, I think that to be consistent with the meaning of a hymn, because we believe in literal interpretation, we need to quit singing this at Christmas and start singing it the rest of the year. So, just a little note, something that you can take with you and perhaps use that as a witnessing opportunity sometime. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And wasn't that great news to wake up to this morning? I almost didn't get my studying done for class to find out that they had captured Saddam Hussein. So... Anybody just finding that out this morning? Y'all just waking up? Yeah, we know who wakes up and turns on the news. And uh, they, apparently it was 12 or 14 hours ago. It was yesterday afternoon that they that they caught him, and they were just confirming it uh, this morning. So you'll want to go home and watch the news all afternoon to find out all the latest. But you have to be careful which network you watch because the main networks have figured out already how to put this in a bad light. It was just amazing to switch back and forth from Fox to the other networks and to see them just present, oh well, this is, it took too long and, and it's just going to upset everybody now and there's going to be more, more, uh, uh, attacks from the insurgents and, and, uh, this really isn't that great of a thing. And uh, it's just amazing how, uh, men in unrighteousness who are operating on a human viewpoint twist, twist 
and suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. So, 1 Corinthians 13. Get off of current events and into the text. Okay, little review. Last time we finished up the 12th chapter, which focused on the giving of spiritual gifts, the importance of spiritual gifts for the whole body. But there is a corrective element here because the Corinthian believers who are operating in carnality, operating on arrogance, have managed to take, just like every one of us can, they've managed to take truth from Scripture and twist it and distort it in their arrogance. That's what the sin nature does. It is, it's an automatic reflex. You learned how to do that. And started practicing that from the moment you could, first moment you could think and began to interpret the world in terms of your own uh, agenda as opposed to uh, the truth. Because as you were born as an unbeliever, born in sin, born with a fallen mind without any knowledge of truth, there is an orientation to rebellion and to suppression of the truth. So the Corinthians, while believers, have been operating on carnality, operating on the standards of the Greek culture that surrounds them. And I keep telling myself that one of these days when I uh, get past some of the things that I'm studying, I want to do an in-depth series on American culture because that's really what worldliness is. It is the human viewpoint aspects of the culture that surround us that we grow up with that we enjoy, that we have a certain affinity for, because that's what's, that's what is comfortable to us. That's our comfort zone. That's the, the culture we, uh, are, uh, uh, have been trained to, to think in. If we were to go to another culture as missionaries, then we would study that culture and how they think, and it's easy to spot that because it's different from the way we think. But it's very difficult to spot uh, various elements of American culture that are part of our thinking that aren't biblical. They may be close. They make us comfortable. There's all kinds of rationales, perhaps, that have been developed in order to justify some of these concepts, but that's what worldliness is. And when we get into carnality, we operate on the thinking of the cosmic system, which is the culture around us, whatever that may be and this is exactly what had happened to the Corinthians they're operating on greek on a greek cultural value system and so they are uh uh they're prizing certain things they are valuing certain characteristics and that one of which is self-absorption arrogance and that's dominating their thought. And therefore, when they would come together as a body of believers, there were certain overt manifestations of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts, such as tongues and and um, miracles, that they were emphasizing above everything else. And they were making those spiritual gifts or those manifestations a benchmark of spirituality much like many do today in Pentecostal charismatic churches that that emphasize certain manifestations. And if you don't have those, then you're just not filled with the Spirit. And I actually had a situation when I was in Dallas. I can't remember now who I was on. Uh, I, John Height, who's pastoring a ch- small doctrinal church in Cleveland. And I got on the elevator and there was a man on the elevator who was an airline pilot. And he was 
making conversation and said, uh, what are you here for? And we're, uh, we told him we were there for the pre-trib, pre-trib rapture study group meeting. And he said, well, what do you do? And we said, well, we're pastors. He said, great, are you going to heaven? I thought that was a good good starting point just because your pastor doesn't mean you're saved and he said and we said yes we are we both trusted Christ alone for our salvation he said that's great but have you been filled with the holy ghost manifested by speaking in tongues <laughs> classic pentecostal and we said we're filled with the spirit but we have not been speaking in tongues because we don't believe that's for today so that was our exposure to a classic Pentecostal, as they'll say down south, making that a long E in there. And he was identifying speaking in tongues with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and it's some higher plane of spirituality. And that has nothing to do with the Bible other than that was the position of the carnal Christians, and it's the position of many carnal Christians today because they don't understand the truth of God's Word. Now, one thing, we're going to get into the whole Pentecostal charismatic error next week in speaking in tongues, but one thing we have to realize as we condemn the false teaching that is prevalent in charismatic circles, that doesn't mean that they're not nice people. Some of them love the Lord and are much more overt and committed in many ways to a consistent uh, spiritual life than many other Christians are. And sometimes when you talk in... uh, and critical, and I'm using that in a, in a positive sense, critical, in the sense of critical thought. When you're critically evaluating the teachings of another group, that it comes across, or some people get the idea that, that they're not nice people, they're bad people, they're evil people, or some sort of caricature that's just not true. I've known some very wonderful, uh, charismatics, who on that one point of doctrine just happened to be very confused and out of line with what the Scripture says. But that doesn't mean that uh, they can't have a spiritual life in many ways, that they're not growing and maturing as believers in many ways and can't have a lot of truth in many other ways. So don't create some uh, false caricature of charismatic Pentecostals just because uh they hold to a wrong position in that area. Now, of course, there are those who do fit that caricature. You know, just turn on TBN sometime or one of the other uh, charismatic networks on television. You'll see some that are just completely out of line, but that's not the same for everyone. There are, whether you know this or not, there are some who believe in the continuation of the gifts, and that's just about the only area in which they have error. They're very close in doctrine to where we are. And I've had the privilege of uh, knowing some uh, who are in that group, and they're, they just don't ever emphasize the tongues or the healing gifts and all that. But this was a problem in Corinth. They were emphasizing certain gifts, and what it all came out of was an attitude of self-absorption and arrogance. Arrogance, remember, is the basic orientation of the sin nature. As soon as you're out of fellowship, you're operating on arrogance. Now, it may not be an overt, extreme sort of arrogance, but arrogance doesn't have to be that way. Arrogance is great at camouflaging itself under all kinds of pseudo-humility guises. So... Don't fall into that trap. 
Well, to straighten out the Corinthians, Paul, first of all, outlines what the gifts are, their role in the body, the correct perspective of the gifts, and the ranking of the gifts in verse 28 of chapter 12. And then he concluded chapter 12 by saying, and yet I show you the most excellent way, corrected translation, and the most excellent way is an emphasis on love and the importance of love. And this introduces the 13th chapter of Corinthians, which is known as the love chapter, because the first seven Verses of chapter 13 is one of the most beautiful pieces of prose that has ever been written describing love. It is, it, its basic literary structure is extraordinary. I mean, Paul was a magnificent writer. Some have said this was a hymn. Others have thought that Paul borrowed this from something else. But I think that Paul had, had meditated quite a bit thought quite a bit about love and had and wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and it is a magnificent outline on the importance of love and a tremendous description of the characteristics of genuine love. Now, one thing we must keep in mind before we get started is that we fall into a trap, a trap that's not dissimilar from the trap the Greeks fell into, because that's our intellectual heritage. And what we tend to think of is that these attributes, such as love, exist somewhere out here in some sort of ideal existence. And we pick that up from Plato. You may have never heard of Plato, but that doesn't mean you can't be platonic. So there's some sort of ideal here, and then you have God. You have God in existence over here. And when we say God is love, what we what we're really thinking, if you stop to think about it, is that God fits this abstract ideal of love. That's completely false. Where did you get this abstract ideal of love? What what attributes does it have? What are the characteristics of that abstract ideal of love? Where did you come up with those? And where you came up with those is your own experience and your own opinion. But that's creating an an idol out of an abstract value and then saying God has to meet that abstract value. What we learn in the scripture is that God is love. So however God acts, that is how we define love. You don't define love in some abstract way and then say, well, God fits that standard. God is the standard. What God does is love. See, this is the trap you fall into when you look at at liberal theology and they say, well, how can a loving God be in favor of capital punishment? Or how can a loving God be in favor of war? See, they've developed an abstract definition for love that that presuppositionally excludes capital punishment, presuppositionally excludes war, and therefore when they come to certain passages in the Old Testament where God is authorizing the Jews to to uh, execute uh, their uh, teenage children because of adolescent rebellion, they say, well, that just can't be a God of love. That, that, just, that just must be some human opinion. Or they get into... The Old Testament in Joshua and the wars to destroy and annihilate the Canaanite culture. And they say, well, that can't be God. Uh, that can, that's not very loving. Well, that is loving. 
and we get into the New Testament and we see episodes where Jesus throws the uh, money changers bodily out of the temple at two different occasions during the incarnation. And we have to say, well, that is part of what love is. We have to factor those in uh, to love, capital punishment, uh, holy war, all of these things we have to factor into our definition of love, which begins to give you a new concept of what love is. You get into uh, the Proverbs and you discover the fact that a, a parent, if they love a child, a parent will discipline them and they will use corporal discipline on them. They will spank a child, and it is authorized in the Scripture. But you have people who operate on uh, different presuppositions, who come up with psychological studies that are slanted from the beginning because of the way they're structured. See, that's what the negative volition of the human soul does, is it tends to uh, shape things in such a way as to predetermine their outcome. And so uh, parents can't be, really love their children if they spank them. Well, you don't love your child if you don't. If you don't, because you're not thinking in terms of the long-term uh, goal, which is to train up that child to instill discipline and authority orientation. Now, that doesn't mean that it's abusive. That doesn't mean it's done out of anger. That doesn't mean that, it's, that it is done in such a way as to be destructive. But... See, when you ha- are operating on a human viewpoint concept of love, then what you do is you take that external definition and come back and impose it on the Scriptures. So what Paul is doing here in these first seven verses is to give us a description of love, but this is not an exhaustive uh, definition of love. It is a description of love that has been nuanced in contrast to the behavior of the Corinthians. So he doesn't say everything there is to say or everything that could be said about love in these seven verses. He is particularly structuring what he says in relationship to the carnal behavior of the Corinthians. So he begins in the first three verses by emphasizing the priority of love and that no matter how much you know about Scripture or no matter how great the spiritual gifts are, and he emphasizes uh, the gift of languages in the first verse, he emphasizes the gifts of prophecy and knowledge and uh, faith in the second verse, and in the third verse he emphasizes certain kinds of application, and he is saying that even if you have certain gifts, even if you have certain knowledge, even if you have certain uh, 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 certain types of application, if it's not done within the framework of love, then it is absolutely useless and meaningless. It is nothing more than pseudo-spirituality and pseudo-humility. Love is the key in this section, as I pointed out the last time. It's used ten times in this chapter, and whenever you have a word used again and again and again in a chapter, then that is the subject the Holy Spirit is emphasizing. Now, even though the the chapter is in the context of spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and, and the gifts of prophecy and tongues in chapter 14, it is not an anacoluthan. That means to go down a rabbit trail, to go off onto a, a side topic. He's not diverting in a major way. He is emphasizing what must be at the core of spiritual service. It's not done to serve oneself, to uh, 
put oneself forward to emphasize one's own uh, position, but it is done from the viewpoint of love, that which is best for other believers, that which is best for the congregation. So all gifts operate and start from a position of grace orientation. And grace orientation means that you have uh, genuine humility. There may be that may begin with enforced humility through parental discipline, and then enforced humility through discipline, or such that it is in an academic environment in school, and even if you don't get discipline in uh, school at the public school level, when you get to college, there will be a certain or university, there will be a certain level of academic discipline imposed. If you go into the military, there will be a discipline imposed. And as you are in enforced humility, you begin to learn genuine humility. And that is foundational to being able to advance to spiritual maturity. Part of grace orientation involves not also giving or serving others. But the uh, correlation to that is that you are also able to be served and you're also able to receive gifts. See, there's a correlation there that's uh, very important. Grace orientation doesn't mean simply that you're uh, not going to be legalistic in relationship to salvation. Grace orientation means that as you understand salvation, that Jesus Christ did everything for you at the cross, and it's not dependent on anything that you or I do in our uh, day-to-day life, but it's totally dependent on him, then we realize that we are to manifest that in our own life as we relate to other people, and we are to treat other people on the sa- in the same way and following the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that grace orientation not only means um, receiving salvation, but it involves treating people in grace, giving them what they don't deserve, but also receiving from others. That's a hard thing for people, I've noticed, is that they sometimes it's easy for some folks to give, but it's very difficult for them to receive. And if you don't learn how to receive, you don't understand grace. And that point was driven home to me in one of my favorite Favorite illustrations, favorite stories took place when Dr. George Meisinger was just a lowly seminary student at Dallas Seminary and went down to Houston to do his pastoral internship at Baraka Church. And during that time, Pastor Theme and his family were going on vacation. This took place some 40 years ago. And uh, Dr. Meisinger and his wife were house-sitting, and as uh, Pastor Theme had the station wagon loaded up with his wife and son and all of their belongings. They started to back out of the driveway, and he stopped and pulled back in, and he got out of the car, and he came over to, to George, and he said, George, he said, you, you're probably going to need some money to uh, take care of you during the next few weeks and uh, next couple of weeks. So he reached in his pocket and pulled out a wad of bills and peeled off a couple of $100 bills. Now, this was about 1964 or 65. A couple of hundred-dollar bills then was a tremendous amount of money. I think the minimum wage was like $1.20 an hour. So that you got to put that in perspective. And he gave that to George. George said, no, 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 you need that money. You're going on your trip. I don't I don't need it. I can take care of everything. And, and Pastor Theme looked him in the eye, and he said, if you don't learn to accept this, you will never understand grace. 
And that's the point. And you won't. And it's amazing how a lot of people don't understand grace. Grace also involves, it not only involves giving, it involves receiving. It involves uh, giving the congregation an opportunity to give to support the local church ministry. See, giving is part of your responsibility as an ambassadorship. We got in some discussions on giving while I was uh, down in uh, Texas and talking with some of the other pastors. And part of what's happened with a lot of us is, number one, we don't like to talk about money. We don't like to talk about giving. We really react to the uh, extreme health and wealth gospel stuff and the people who pass a plate every 15 minutes through a service. So rather than doing that, we go to the other extreme and we just don't mention it as if, uh, well, that's one of the things we're supposed to do, but we don't want to talk about it. Somehow the sheep are going to learn about it through osmosis. They're just going to be zapped by the Holy Spirit apart from the teaching of the pastor. But if the pastor doesn't teach you, who's going to teach you? But that's part of the responsibility, and that's part of grace orientation is learning learning to give, and that develops a capacity for for love. We uh, uh, move from in the basics of the spiritual life in grace orientation to as we advance into spiritual maturity, we develop a personal love for God. See, there's a, there's a correlation here because as we understand grace, the more we understand God's grace to us, the more we love him. We understand who he is and what he's done for us and the breadth and depth of what he's done for us. So we learn to love him, and then what? Then as a result of that, we love others. See, personal love for God is the motivator, that personal love for God and focus on God gives the love the integrity that real love must have. Real love cannot function without integrity, otherwise it's no better than the character of the person who is saying, I love you. But when that person who says, I love you, and is demonstrating love, is grounding that on the immutable, immutable righteous character of God, then that word love and that declaration of love begins to have some real meaning. So love flows from this base, this foundation of grace orientation, personal love for God the Father, and then impersonal love for all mankind. Now, as we get into chapter 13, this fits into the broader context that was introduced back in chapter 8, verse 1, where Paul made the statement that knowledge, which is gnosis there, that is simply academic knowledge, information, that gnosis makes arrogant, and that's true. Epinosis doesn't. I've heard people say all along that you folks who go to Bible churches, you just, you, all you do is sit and study the Bible and just bloat you up and you begin to sit, soak, and sour. And uh, that is a total misunderstanding of the dynamics of the spiritual life. We may learn a lot. We may hear a lot. We may have pastors and doctrinal churches who teach a lot more than anyone else teaches. But if you use that as a basis for arrogance, then you don't understand the first thing about the Christian life. But the Christian life is based on knowledge. We have to know something to apply it. And we always know a lot more about any field than we apply. And you only apply perhaps 1% or 2%. I don't know. I'm just guessing, estimating. You always apply only a small percentage of your general field of knowledge. So it stands to reason that the more you know, the more you will apply. So we emphasize knowledge, but not for knowledge's sake, but knowledge is the means to an end, which is spiritual growth, knowing how to think biblically, how to think 
uh, as Christ thinks, how to think in terms of divine viewpoint for the application of doctrine and spiritual growth. So when we come to this section of 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10 focused on uh, arrogance in terms of the food sacrifice to idols and arrogance in terms of of doubtful things. In chapter 11, we saw arrogance as it manifested itself in their order of worship, the uh, the role of men and women in the local worship service was being subverted because of arrogance. There were also problems in the Lord's table. And then in verses or in chapters 12 through 14, we have problems in the spiritual gifts due to arrogance. And then this chapter, chapter 13, is going to focus on the real underlying problem, which is their arrogance and lack of love. So we come to verse 1, and verses 1 through 3 all follow the same pattern. It it begins with a third-class condition in the Greek. Now, for those of you who haven't been around in a while, there are three ways to express a conditional clause in the Greek. And a conditional clause is a clause that begins with the word if and expresses a condition. Now, in English, we can just do this one way. But in Greek, there are actually four different ways. In classical Greek, there was a fifth. But there are four different ways, only three. The first three are used in the Scriptures. The fourth-class condition is only used partially in two different cases in the New Testament. Uh, First-class condition has the idea that if... And it's true. There are two sections to any any conditional sentence. If this, then that. For example, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, then, although then's not in the text, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The then is implied. So the if clause is called a protasis, P-R-O, that preposition. Uh, prefix indicates that which comes first. So that is called a protasis. The second clause is called an apotasis. So the protasis in the first class condition assumes the truth of the, of the clause, of the, of the, pro, of the condition. The second class condition, if and it's not true, assumes the unreality or the falsehood of the of the protasis. And the reason you say it's assumed because the writer could be just simply taking a position for debate's sake. He could be saying, if this is true, but it's you know, you know it's not, and I know it's not, but he's debating the point, so he's going to say if and assuming this would be true, then this is what would follow. And uh Satan could say, uh, talks to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he could say, um, uh, use an if clause and assuming something to be true and it's not, but he's lying or he's being deceptive. So second class condition, if and it's not true. Third class condition is if and either it's, it's true or it's not true. It's a, it's, it's more like the true hypothetical or, or excuse me, the true uh, contingent condition that we think of, although in some cases it can be if and it's more likely to be true, but it's not. And in other cases, 
it is merely used to express a hypothetical situation that has no reality whatsoever. And that's the situation that we have here. The third class condition is much more fluid. It can approach the first class condition. It can even approach the second class condition. And sometimes it just expresses true true contingency, such as in 1 John 1, 9, if maybe you will, maybe you won't confess your sins. But... The if clause here is a third class condition and it expresses a hypothetical situation. Paul is not saying that you can speak with the languages of men and of angels, specifically of angels. He is simply using a hypothetical situation, an extreme situation in order to make a point. He is not saying that you can, he is not even saying that there are angelic languages. In fact, if you do a study of the scriptures, of every time angels appear to men, they speak in human languages. There is no biblical evidence that there is a distinct angelic language. So Paul begins here, though... And it's translated though, but it should be even if, indicating that strong uh, hypothetical situation, even if I speak, and there's our verb laleo. It's a present active subjunctive, and this indicates the the hypothetical or contingency of the third class condition. Third class condition is always expressed with the particle aeon plus a subjunctive verb. And this subjunctive verb indicates uh, potentiality, but it doesn't suggest that it is indeed real. So he is starting here with the pseudo-priorities of the carnal Corinthian believer. Their priority was to speak in languages. And the word there translated uh, tongues is the word glossa, which means languages. In almost every language of the world, you will find this idea that that the word for language is their word for tongue because it is with the tongue that we speak. And so this, we, we don't use that idiom much anymore. That's a more of an uh, antiquated uh, term in English. But it means languages. So what Paul is saying is, even if I speak with the languages of men and of angels, but have not love, that's his point. If I don't have love, I have become something. So he says, even if I speak, even if I can do all of these extreme things and have this tremendous manifestation of what you think is the, the spirit and spirituality, but if it's missing love, if I have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And this word for I have become is the perfect active indicative of the verb genomai, which means to move from one state to another. And if it's in the perfect tense, it's indicating a present reality from a past action, a past completed action. Perfect tense emphasizes the completedness of the action and the present results. So it should, this opening part of the verse should be translated, 
If I were to speak with, actually that should be languages, if I were to speak with the languages of men and of angels, I would have become, in other words, I would have already become something. I would already have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. A sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now, Paul is emphasizing here the priority of love, and this just isn't everyday love. This is a love that is unique to the spiritual life. For example, in Galatians 5.22, we're told that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. Now, Galatians 5.22 is located in the context of Galatians 5.14 down through the end of the chapter, and in Galatians 5.14, there's a quote from Leviticus 19.18 emphasizing the importance and priority of love. Love one another uh, as love, love your neighbor, excuse me, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So Galatians chapter, Galatians chapter 5, uh, excuse me, that, yeah, Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, quotes from the Old Testament and that mandate to love your neighbor as yourself, and then you go through a section talking about the importance of walking in the Spirit, and then the first fruit of the Spirit is love. So that is something that is supernaturally produced in the believer who is walking by the Holy Spirit. This isn't the kind of love that an unbeliever can demonstrate. It's not the kind of love that you're going to demonstrate when you're out of fellowship. This is a uh, special kind of love that is produced by the Holy Spirit. It's impersonal love, what we call impersonal love, because you don't have to have personal knowledge or personal relationship with the object of love. This was expressed by the Lord Jesus Christ before he went to the cross. In John 13, he told his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And there I have many times pointed out that the new commandment is slightly different from the old commandment. The old commandment was to love your neighbor. That could be a believer or an unbeliever. And the standard was as you loved yourself. That is, uh, that we all are born with a certain amount of self-love that's part of self-absorption and arrogance. But the believer is to love other believers in the same way that Christ loved us. So that's the standard. That's what gives us knowledge and content about love. So love denotes then volitional acts of regard, respect, and concern for the welfare of others. Then Paul says, if I do not have this kind of love, if this isn't what undergirds my use of the spiritual gifts and service in or to the body of Christ, and that may be manifested in a local church or it may be manifested one-on-one to another believer. If, if I do not have love, then he says, I have already become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now, this is a very interesting concept here. What does he mean by becoming a sounding brass or a clanging uh, clanging symbol. The first word, a sounding brass, is the Greek word akon, and that has the idea of bronze materials. And these were acoustic resonators 
that were used to produce sound. And the participle comes from the Greek word somizo, which, um, or excuse me, the, the, the part, uh, this is a participle acone, it's a participle itself, and it indicates sounding in something that goes on and on and on and continues to uh, resonate. Now, it used to be, and if you look in older commentaries, you look in older lexicons, what they often suggest and what I have taught in the past is the use of these resonators or these clanging symbols uh, was something that was used in the cultic ritual and the worship of the various uh, gods and goddesses. And so Paul, of course, is making an allusion to the fact that um, that they're not any more significant or their spiritual life isn't more any more significant than the spiritual life of an idol worshiper. But recent discoveries invalidate that idea. He's not talking about... Uh, some sort of resonator used in worship or clanging symbols used in the worship of the false gods. The, there's been certain discoveries that the, that the Greeks in the, in the theaters, in order to enhance sound and to develop uh, the acoustics in their uh, amphitheaters, would use uh, bronze jars that they would put in the uh, in niches around the audience so that as the speakers uh, spoke, the sound would resonate off of that brass, and it would enhance the sound. That was back in the days before they had, obviously, before they had electricity and and, uh, sound systems. So it was a sound reverberator. And so Paul says, I would become, if I don't have love, I'm just this empty sound resonator, or a clanging symbol. And this is the word uh, kumbalon. Kumbalon, which as you can see, if you were to transliterate that K to a C, remember they didn't have a, a C with a S sound in, in Greek, so if you take that, you can see why it is etymolo- how it is etymologically related to symbol. If you were to take that K-U and transliterate it C-U, it would uh, be even more evident. It's a musical instrument, some kind of symbol. Of course, I misspelled symbol, but that's uh, an alalazone is a wailing, a, a loud reverberating noise. So what Paul is saying is, you if you don't have, if you don't have love, person, and and the word love here. Don't restrict it to either personal love for God or impersonal love for all mankind. The scriptures use that word agape, and many times it includes both of those ideas. See, both of those ideas are present. And if you don't have love, because remember, all spiritual service ultimately is service to God for the body of Christ. It is not just to other people. Ultimately, it is to God. So if you are... What Paul says, if you're speaking in languages, no matter how impressed everybody else may be, if you don't have personal love for God and impersonal love for all mankind working together, then you're nothing more than meaningless sound. It has no value whatsoever uh, spiritually. And that service is nothing more than feeding your own arrogance. Then in the second verse, he builds on this, and he uses that same 
uh, third class condition construction again. And he says, and if I have the gift of prophecy. And again, this is, he's not saying that he does. He's not saying that he doesn't. He's not saying that you could or you can't. He is simply expressing an extreme. If I have uh, the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. See, he didn't understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And that's clear from the fact that down in verse uh, 9, he will say, For we know in part. Our current knowledge is partial. So it's clear from the context that nobody has all mysteries and all knowledge. He is simply using this in a hyperbolic sense to express the fact that that no matter how much you may have been graced out by God in being given uh, extreme spiritual gifts, if it's not done with love, it's meaningless. So he uses this hyperbole to express his position. He says, though I have prophecy and understand all mysteries, and that is the word musterion, which has to do with previously unrevealed truth. There may be a little bit of a, of a double or a double entendre here, because musterion in, in the Greek had to do with the mystery religions and the secret rites and rituals related to that, and so there could be a little bit of a of a double entendre here where he's not just talking about understanding mystery doctrine of the church, but talking about understanding all these special things that nobody else really understands. And so he says, if I have prophecy, that is God speaking through me, uh, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, no matter how great my knowledge might be, and though I have all faith, Notice he's talking about spiritual gifts here that were all temporary spiritual gifts, prophecy, knowledge, and faith, so that I could remove mountains. And that doesn't mean that it was understood to literally be able to move a mountain. That is, was simply an idiom to do something that one would think would be impossible, that is, to perform a miracle. Though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love. Once again, that same point, if I don't have love, I am nothing. It has no benefit for the spiritual life. It doesn't provide any value for me or for anyone else because it's nothing more than arrogant and arrogance and self-absorption. And then we come to the third verse. Same construction, third class condition, used to express uh, a hypothetical condition, and Paul is using uh, hyperbole here. He is using hyperbole here, and he says, in verse 3, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now, there's a couple of interesting things in this particular uh, verse that we need to to uh, look at. First of all, that first word, uh, I bestow, is the Greek word uh, samizo. So, so mezo, and it looks like this in the Greek. P-S-O-M-I-Z-O. Somizo. And it's a present active subjunctive. Subjunctive mood indicates, once again, potentiality, not 
as reality, which would be the indicative mood. And it means to feed, it means to nourish, it's from the, from the root noun samas, which means a morsel, and it's usually used with the accusative case in or, to express uh, giving something in installments, to dole something out. And in this verse it is used, in this verse it's used to uh, describe selling off your possessions and property one thing at a time in order to feed the poor and to take care of those who are less fortunate. So the idea here is of selling off one's property in order to feed the poor or the needy. So that's one extreme, is I'm going to show how generous I am by selling off everything and giving everything I have to the poor. And then, um, of course, I could say he must have been a Democrat there. So, But <clears throat> we'll just bypass that and go to the second half of the clause. And though I give my body to be burned, and here we have a textual problem. Here we have a textual problem, and that textual problem is expressed by uh, by two words. Let me put them up there. There we go, kalkasomai and kalthasomai. See, you can see I've highlighted the uh, letters there, the key in kalkasomai and the theta in kalthasomai, and you can see how similar they are, and it's just the trans uh, trans transfer of one letter to the other one the first word means that i might boast and the second means that i might be burned and so there's some uh, debate as to just exactly which way the text reads here and i believe it re- should read uh cow uh to be cow to be to be burned it's an extreme position, even if I am martyred and I am uh, burned alive, but don't have love, then it doesn't profit me anything. So Paul says, he's emphasizing grace here because he uses the verb paradidomi. And anytime you have the word didomi, grace is hanging around in the background. That means to give. And it's uh, the prefix of the preposition para emphasizes the the verb and uh, adds uh, an intensity to it. So it has the idea, paradidomy has the idea of to give up, to hand over, or to deliver up my body to be burned. And then he concludes, it profits me nothing. This is a good economic term, afaleo, a present passive indicative, meaning to be, it, it is to me of no value. It provides no value to the subject of the verb, and as a passive voice, the subject receives the action of the verb, and the subject receives nothing by all of these manifestations of religiosity. That's what religious people do, thinking they're impressing God, is that they get involved in self-sacrifice, and they get involved in ascetic operations where they give themselves up or they go through some sort of self-flagellation in order to impress God. And God says this doesn't produce anything. It has no value whatsoever. And then beginning in verse 4, we start a three-verse series, 4, 5, and 6, and 7, four-verse series, where... Paul provides various 
adjectives to describe love. Now remember, this is not an exhaustive, conclusive list. He is primarily using these characteristics in order to contrast the behavior and the attitude of the carnal Corinthians with what genuine love will look like that's produced by the Holy Spirit. And the first thing he says is that love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. So the first two characteristics are positive. The others are negative. Now, what does that mean that love suffers long? This is the Greek word makrothumeo. Makrothumeo is the Greek verb. M-A-K-R-O-T-H-U-M-E-O. And makra means long. And thumeo means anger, thumos. And this has the idea of, of long on anger. In other words, it's going to take a long time before this person becomes angry. Actual usage, the word emphasizes patience, steadfastness, the ability to remain tranquil and calm while waiting. It means to endure provocation without complaint. Now think about that in terms of any relationship that you have. Uh, Love means to endure provocation without complaint. The idea here is to not seek revenge or retribution or to get back at someone when you are wrong, not trying to justify yourself. See, this is just the opposite of Greek thought and modern thought. That is the idea that somehow if we're wronged, we have a right to to being vindicated. And macrothumeo is just the opposite idea that you're going to be able to rest in the Supreme Court of Heaven for your vindication, and you're not going to try to get it yourself. So love is long-suffering. It's going to put up with provocation and not make an issue out of it. Second, love is kind. And this is the verb Christuomai. Christuomai. C-H-R-E-S-T-E-U-O-M-A-I. And Christuomai has the idea from of showing yourself to be mild or relaxed. It is sometimes translated being benevolent or kind, but kind, to me, kind is sort of a weak word, a pusillanimous word. Uh, the, the, the cognate noun, which is uh, krestos, not Christos, which is anoint, but but crest, or krestos, it's a eta here, a long e, has the idea of being morally good or benevolent. So the idea in Christuomai is to emphasize a, the positive aspect of reaching out to help someone or to be useful to someone else. So love is long-suffering. It doesn't uh, try to doesn't get involved in self-justification, and it is kind that it is positively useful to its object. And then we get into some negatives. Love does not envy. First of all, love does not envy. It's not jealous. This is the Greek verb zelao, 
which means to be jealous or envious, and it emphasizes an uncontrolled outburst of envy or jealousy. So once again, envy and jealousy come out of self-absorption. I'm not getting what I want. That person's not treating me the way I think I ought to be treated. They're paying attention to somebody else. So there's a contrast in, in, in this with arrogance. Love is not jealous or envious. It does not parade itself the... Uh, New King James says, love does not parade itself, or love does not brag. It's the Greek verb perperuomai, perperuomai. Perperuomai. P-E-R, P-E-R. E-U-O-M-A-I. And this has to do with someone who is, who is just conceited, just bragging on empty accomplishments and making an issue again out of self. So once again, we see that love is something that is not oriented to self and is contrasted with arrogance and self-absorption. And then the last word that's used here is fusiao. Fusiao. P-H-U-S-I-O-O. This is the same word that's used over in 1 Corinthians 8.1 for knowledge puffs up or makes arrogant. So love is positively, it doesn't seek to vindicate itself, it is not going to uh, um, get involved in, in revenge or vindictiveness, it's, it's going to put up with uh, being mistreated in certain ways, uh, overlooked, and it is kind. It's going to have a positive element in reaching out. Love does not envy. Envy comes from self-absorption. Love is not uh, conceited. And then finally, love is not arrogant. We'll get into this again. We'll finish up the characteristics of love next Sunday. We'll go through 5 through 7, finish up love related to other passages and studies we've had on love to give us a better understanding. And that then... Uh, this will work out just fine. But those of you who have a tendency to take off that Sunday between Christmas and New Year's will hit the key passage on tongues, and you won't want to miss that. And then uh, when the New Year comes, we'll start 14. So we may finish we may finish uh, Corinthians before Easter. Now nah, we won't do that. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this time to study your word this morning, to be challenged by what love is, and to be reminded that love is uh, expressed most fully by your gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3.16 states, For God loved the world in this manner, that he gave his unique Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we thank you for all that you have given us in salvation and our unique spiritual life. Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do in order to be saved is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of going through some sort of religious observance. It's not a matter of ritual. It's not a matter of bargaining with God. It's not a matter of reforming your morality. It is simply a matter of trusting in the substitutionary uh, work of Christ on the cross where he paid the penalty uh, 
for each of our sins. All you have to do to benefit from that is to accept it as a free gift. It's not based on what you do. It's based on what Christ did on the cross. Father, we thank you for what we have studied this morning. We pray that you would help us to understand these things and apply them in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.